have been assigned the text of Philippians chapter 1. And I will be obedient to the assignment that has been given me. Um, we're looking to do a journey through this uh, short letter of Paul's uh, to the church at Philippi. And so I'm just going to pull out some highlights from the, from the opening verses, verses 1 through 11. That is the prayer of Paul to the uh, Philippian believers. If you have your Bible, you can turn to or turn on your Bible. I know more, a lot of us are using digital Bibles, and I use one too. That's not a knock. I, I use a digital Bible also. However, uh, when I preach, I usually preach from a hard copy. Um, and so let me just read the first 11 verses. I will be reading from the New American Standard Translation. Uh, if you're using the King James or another translation, it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, but I believe we will be able to catch the gist of what uh, the apostle is writing. It says here, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my, in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, <clears throat> that he who began a good work in you will perfect it or carry it on to the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that, you, that your love may abound still more and more, in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Those are the... Uh, 11 verses of Paul's prayer, and I just want to pull out some highlights from this prayer uh, and share with you uh, today, and you will be able to preach them when you go home, is what you'll be able to do. Um, just some quick background, you will recall from your uh, Bible study that Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, uh, on their second missionary journey, traveled through Macedonia. In Acts chapter 16, they leave Derby. They are forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go into a specific area, and then from there, 
Paul has a vision uh, of a man saying, come over into Macedonia and help us. And Luke writes, we concluded that the Lord had opened a door into Macedonia uh, for us to preach the gospel. They arrive in Philippi, which is a Roman colony. And as they arrive in Philippi, they go down to the riverside because there was no synagogue, which indicates that there was not a significant Jewish population in Philippi. Uh, history tells us that there had to be at least 10 males in a city in order for a synagogue to be organized. And so Paul uh, and his missionary team go down to the river and there they encounter a group of women praying by the riverside. And among that uh, group is Lydia, a woman of Thyatira, a business owner, a seller of purple. The record says in the 16th chapter that the Lord opened her heart to receive the things that Paul and his ministry team was praying. She believes the gospel, she and her household. She is baptized and she invites Paul and the team to stay in Philippi a while. She makes a statement, if I have found favor in your sight and if you uh, deem that I am worthy, stay here with me for a while. So she stays, and while staying, uh, Paul and Silas travel through the city, and while traveling through the city, they encounter a slave girl who has a spirit of divination. And she's walking behind Paul and Silas saying, these men are bond slaves of the Most High God, and they are telling you the way of salvation. And Paul, uh, hearing this for several days, gets irritated, and I guess the young girl gets on his last nerve, and he turns and he commands that that spirit of divination come out of the girl. And when her owner saw that their loss for revenue diminished with the casting out of the spirit, uh, they bring Paul and Silas before the magistrates. And they make this accusation, these men are teaching things that are not lawful or right for us to hear. And just a parenthetical note here, the reason why they say that is because Philippi is a city that is loyal to Caesar. And the reason for that is because when the city was organized, Caesar came in and declared that those occupants would become Roman citizens with all the privileges thereof. And the cult of Caesar or Caesar worship was dominant and prevalent in Philippi. And so when Paul and Silas go through there and preach the gospel, and this woman is saying, uh, these men are bond slaves of the Most High God, she is saying that they're Loyalty and their allegiance is to God and God alone and not to Caesar. And so when, she, when they say that now, that theology and that belief system is foreign and hostile to Caesar worship or the deification of Caesar because the people believe 
that Caesar was not only Lord, but that he was Savior. Okay? And so when Paul and Silas go through the town and preach the gospel, and this, uh, this, th these men are concerned about their loss of revenue, they are able to make an accurate uh, accusation against Paul and Silas by saying, what they are teaching is dangerous. Yes, it is dangerous. Because our loyalty is to Caesar. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. They are talking about loyalty to another person by the name of Christ. And there is this conflict. They're arrested. They're beaten. They're thrown in jail. And you know the story. At midnight, they sing praises and and offer prayer to God, and, and an earthquake comes, shakes the jail, loosens the chains, and the jailer is ready to kill himself. And Paul, seeing this, saying, cries out, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. The jailer comes, brings a light, uh, 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 provides medical attention to Paul and Silas, and then he asks this uh, pivotal question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The response is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved and your whole household. Talks about he calls for a light. They preach the gospel to him, not only to him, but to his whole house. There is a conversion that happens there. They are baptized, and, and in the ensuing days, the magistrates uh, say, okay, Paul and Silas, you can go now. And Paul, knowing what they had done was unjust because he was a Roman citizen, and it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. They're trying to usher him out of the city. Paul says, no, you are going to come and have us leave the city the right way. All of this is in the background that sets up the letter to the church at Philippi. Now, fast forward some eight to ten years. Paul now sits in a Roman jail having been arrested. And while he is arrested, he is uh, chained to the Praetorian Guard. And he is writing back to these believers in Philippi, whom he had not seen for a while, because ministry had taken him to other places. After they leave Philippi, they go into Thessal Thessalonica, they go into other places, they come back to Antioch. He begins his uh, third missionary journey. He travels through Ephesus. He comes to Miletus. He calls the elders together, and he tells them, you'll never see my face again. He gets on a ship, and he sails to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he's arrested for preaching the gospel. And now he sits in a jail, sail. But his mindset uh, is not in jail. His mindset is not shackled because he writes back to the church at Philippi some eight to ten years later. Now, that's the background for the text of what I just read. Paul and Silas, or crutching Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. Okay, now let's just run through this text and just pick out some things that, uh, that, that are uh, beneficial to us. The author of the letter is identified, Paul and Timothy, okay? He picks up Timothy uh, at the start of his second missionary journey. When he sees them around town, he has a good reputation. He is the son of a Jewish mother and a Greek father. Paul circumcised him and invites him to be a part of the missionary team. But he makes this statement, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Bond servants, we heard that term where before? Back in Philippi, when the slave girl said, these men are bondservants of the Most High God, meaning 
that they are control their, their allegiance and their loyalty is to the one who owns and sustains them. That's the image behind a bond servant is one who is owned by another and who finds his or her identity in the ownership of another. Okay, and so he says bond servants, bond servants of who? Bond servants of Christ Jesus, meaning that Paul and Silas are finding their identity and loyalty and their entire reason for living in the reality of being slaves of, or servants of Jesus Christ. And so he says here now, bond servants of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is a pivotal term throughout this letter. Let me show you just how many times it occurs just in the first 11 verses. Okay? Paul and Silas, verse number one. Bond servants of Christ Jesus, all right? To all the saints in Christ Jesus. Verse number two. Grace and peace to you, God the Father and Jesus Christ. Verse number six. He who began a work in you will can carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Verse number eight, for God is my witness how I long with affection for you of Christ Jesus. And then verse number 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. Verse number 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Do you think that Paul is trying to get a message across that there is something about being in Christ Jesus? And so he says, Paul and Silas, or Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, uh, called or to all the saints, to all the saints. And what he's doing here, he is linking this New Testament term to the Old Testament term that we find in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, when God tells his people at the foot of Mount Sinai, I am calling you to be my holy nation. It has roots in being God's special possession. You pray today in your prayer. I heard you. I was listening. That we are a royal nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so he is saying to the saints, to those who are saved, to those who have been born again, to those who have been made holy. Hagios is the Greek term there that says we have been set apart. So Paul is saying here that set apart saints don't run from the word saint. Because all of us, if we are saved, are saints. You don't have to wait till the committee in Rome at the Vatican votes on you to enter sainthood. Because of your redeemed position in Christ, okay, we are his saints. And so he says here, saints of Christ Jesus, where? In Philippi. And so he's writing back to them to let them know, you Philippian believers are God's holy people in the city of Philippi. Fast forward to 2021. You transforming love Christian church members are God's representatives, holy people, wherever you are. Not just here at 19300 Redwood Road in the Williams Chapel, but wherever you go, in your home, on your job, at school, recreation, wherever you go, you, we, I are his saints. 
So he says now, now he goes on um, to the deacons and overseers, which, which indicates that there is structure even in these early churches that Paul organized. Now he goes on the second uh, verse because verses one and two are one sentence in the Greek text. And so he goes on and he says now, grace and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. And the way it is actually constructed is grace from God who gave us Jesus who made us at peace with him. And so peace is the outflow of grace. You cannot have peace without grace. And so he says grace of God that is in Christ Jesus brings us peace. And so he says there grace and peace. Now he, he moves on to the prayer. The prayer is broken down into two sections. Verses 3 through 5, correction, 3 through 6 are the first part of the prayer, which is thanksgiving. And so he says, I thank God. The main verb in the prayer is, I thank God. Now everything else flows out of that. So when you read it now, he says here, I thank God. Okay? But he know, now he goes on and he says what? He makes it uh, personal because he says, I not only thank God, but I thank my God. All right? And so he makes it personal, meaning that Paul is saying, I have a relationship with God. You have a relationship with God. And I am thanking my God for you because we both have a relationship with him. He goes on and he says now, listen to, what he, listen to the prayer of thanksgiving. This is just the first part of the prayer. He says now, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering. That's the second main verb in the prayer. Offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it, will perfect it, will carry it on to completion in the day until the day of Christ Jesus. He's thanking God. Why? First of all, because when Paul went through Philippi, he went through there as an apostle preaching the gospel, and there were those in Philippi who received the gospel, and as a result, a church was formed. And they became participants and partakers and sharers in the gospel. So he says there, in view of your participation, the Greek word there is kononia, which we get our English word fellowship from. And so what he's saying there is we have a fellowship. Where is our fellowship? Our fellowship is in the gospel. God has redeemed us. We are his redeemed children. And now we have peace with God. We have fellowship with each other. So he goes on and he says now, every time I think of you, I have reason to rejoice. Now that's a strong statement there. Every time I have reason to think of you, interestingly enough, this is the one letter, or correction, one of three letters, in which 
the writer does not identify himself as an apostle. When you read Paul's letters, most of them start off, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Read Romans verse 1, Paul, an apostle. Corinthians 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle. Galatians 1, Paul, an apostle. Ephesians 1, Paul, an apostle. Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle. The only letters that do not have it are Philemon and the letters of Thessalonica, which indicates an intimate relationship that Paul has with these believers. And so he's, in, in, in one aspect, he just dismisses the formalities and just says, Paul, bondservants. And so he says now, I always make mention of you in my prayer. There's a sense of friendship. There's a sense of love. There's a sense of kinship that he has for these believers. This is one of the few letters where there's hardly any rebuke in it whatsoever because of the kinship because of the friendship that the apostle has for them. And so he says now, in view of your participation, from the first part until now, but it wasn't just the gospel. These Philippian believers had sent at least two offerings that we know of to Paul while he was in jail. They had some skin in the game. And so when Paul thinks of their participation in the gospel when he first arrived at Philippi, how they have held on to the faith, how in spite of others condemning them for bowing to Jesus and ridiculing them for not bowing to Caesar, they've held on to their faith, they've walked worthy, they're loving one another, and Paul is saying, when I think of this, my heart is filled with joy. But also when I think about not only are you walking worthy, but also you went into your pocketbook and your checkbook. Yeah, if you let me put it like this, you contacted Zale and you contacted uh, the other uh, 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 services and sent me an offering and ministered to my needs. He's saying, not only did you have lip service, but you had pocket service. Yeah, and pocket service oftentimes will show just how authentic lip service is. And so he says here that when I think of this, I have joy and I'm so confident what? That, verse 6, he that began a good work in you will carry it on. And in that sixth verse is this thought, the past and the present are affirmed by the future. The past and the present. He that began, past tense, a good work in you, present tense, will carry it on, present tense, until its full completion, future tense. Past and present are connected and affirmed by the future. So that's the first uh, verses one through six. Now there's a shift. Because in verses 7 and 8, he gives a reason, goes back to his reason. Now he says, 
For it is only right for me to have you in my heart this way. Some translation says, for it's only right for me to feel this way about you. It's a mindset. It's, a, it's, it's an attitude that he has. And why does he have this attitude? He says in verse number seven, for since my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel, you have been partakers with me. All right? So now we know, and he affirms that he's in jail. Okay? But interestingly enough, they, the Philippine church, did not try to distance themselves from Paul because he's now a jailbird. Think on that for just a minute. Think of how many times individuals whom we know of maybe stumble and fall or maybe get arrested and we decide we can no longer have anything to do with it. Abandon them in their time of need. And what Paul is saying here is that in verse number 7, you are a fellow partaker with me because in my defense of the gospel, in my incarceration, you did not disown me. And so when people started going around town talking about Paul is in jail, no one of, none of you said Paul who? Okay? You know how sometimes we do when we don't want people to know that we know somebody else? Oh, uh, Paul? Uh, well, I've, I've heard that name before, but, 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 but we're not really friends now. I mean, we know, we, I've seen him or her, but, but, but we don't kick it together, man. Yeah, we was at the club together, but no, we, we, we're not really, we're not dogs. We're not in the cut together. And what Paul is saying here is that the Philippian church stayed in the cut with him. They didn't abandon him. In his hour of need, he says right here in verse number 7 now, he says, because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment, in my defense, and in my confirmation. These are all legal terms that Paul is using. He says, in my incarceration, I've been arrested. A legal term. In my defense, the word there is where we get our English term from apologetics. It comes from the Greek word apologia, which means to give a reason for what something, why something is being done. And then the other word, confirmation, confirmation has this connotation that I am confirming as authentic. I am establishing that which is authentic. And so what is he saying here? He is saying that in my incarceration, you, Philippian Christians, you have defended the gospel, you didn't shrink back from it, and you affirmed its value and its worth. Now let's bring that to this 20th century right now. Do you affirm that the gospel is real and true? Do you affirm, I'm not talking about just a, a, a mental assent to it, but in your very being and fiber, do you affirm the reality of who Jesus is? Do you affirm his death on the cross? Do you affirm his sinless birth? Do you affirm all of the miracles that he performed? Do you affirm his burial? Do you affirm his resurrection? Do you affirm his ascension? 
Do you affirm his mediation for us right now? And do you affirm that he's coming back? That's what he's talking about. Apologia, defense, and confirmation. So he says there, he says there, in all of this, you have been partakers. In the verse number seven, partakers. Verse number five, participation. Same word indicating the fellowship or the kinship that they had with each other. So Paul says here now, as I hurry on to a close, verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Now get this in mind. What kind of affection did Jesus have for us to die on the cross? All right? Now keep that in mind when Paul says, I have this affection for you in Christ Jesus. Meaning that Christ Jesus is motivating me to, to feel this way about you. Christ Jesus and my relationship with him and your relationship with him is my motivation for how I have this affection and how I hope to be able to see you again. Now we move on to the second part of the prayer, which is the petition. So we've had the thanksgiving. I thank God, verse 3. Verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. That's the petition, thanksgiving. And now he moves on, a correction, that is, yeah, that's uh, the opening prayer, part of the prayer of thanksgiving. Now he moves to petition, all right? And interestingly enough, what Paul is doing in this prayer is the same thing that he admonishes us to do in the fourth chapter. You recall back in, in the fourth chapter, you'll get to it later on as you go through the book, he says there, what? Be anxious for nothing, or King James, be careful for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So what does Paul do? Paul includes thanksgiving in his prayer, and now he's going to petition. The same pattern in this prayer, you see the same pattern in his prayer for the church at Colossae. Or the or prayer for the church at Ephesus, prayer for the saints in Thessalonica. He always starts off by thanking, and then he moves from thanking to actually petitioning something on their behalf. And so he says here now, verses number 9 through 11 are all one sentence. So let's run through this one sentence, and then I will take my seat and you can go home. Verse 9, and this I pray. Back to the central theme, I thank God. Okay? He says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and discernment so that you may be able to approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Christ Jesus 
to the glory and praise of the Father. The petition is, I pray that your love will continue to abound. They already had love. That wasn't the issue. Okay? But the prayer is what? I pray that your love will grow and grow. Okay? I pray that your love will abound and abound. I pray that your love will increase and increase. I pray that your love will never become stagnant, but that it will always be moving to the next level. It reminds me of a similar prayer that he prays in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3 when he talks about so that you may know the height, the depth, the breadth, and the width of the love of Christ. Jesus, what he is saying there is that there should not be any exhaustibility to your love. You should not get to the point where you no longer love one another. So he says here in verse number 9, I pray that your love may still abound and abound. More and more. What, and now, what is the love centered around? Real knowledge and discernment. Okay? Now, why is that important? Because he wanted them, because knowledge and discernment go hand in hand. They're not separated. And so the knowledge is that which, the, that which I am able to ascend to with my mind. It includes both my mental capacity and my senses. And so there needs to be congruence between my mental capacity and my senses. And when they are in congruence with one another, then comes in all the discernment. I can tell what is authentic and I can tell that which is faint. I can tell those things in which I should engage and I can tell those things from which I should abstain. And so he says there, I want your love to grow still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. And it's not just there so that you can have it and say that I have it, but it's there so that you can so that you can do what? So that you can approve. You see, there's a flow to his prayer. He doesn't just want them to have love for the sake of love, but the love flows into knowledge. The love flows into discernment. The discernment does what? The discernment allows them to be able to test. That's what that word approves means. A test and verify authentic that which is excellent, that which is of value, that which is worth. Now keep in mind the culture that they were living in. The culture that they were living in had gods everywhere. As a matter of fact, one historian could say you, you could find a god or an idol in town easier than you almost could find a human being. That's how many that they had in the Greco-Roman culture. And so in this Greco-Roman culture and everything that is competing for their time, competing for their interests, Paul is saying here that everything that competes for your interests and everything that competes for your time may not necessarily be worthy or excellent. And so you and I, the application for us is what? You and I need to exercise some discernment some wisdom, you and I need to not jump on every ship that rolls by. Some things we ought to take a step back and say, let me just check it out before I co-sign on it. 
And so the idea is, is that he wants us to be able to know the times, to see what's going on, and be able to exclude that which is unworthy and embrace that which is consistent with my identity in Christ. So let me ask you this. What in your life is inconsistent with your identity in Christ? What in your life has not met the spiritual smell test, but yet you still have it in your life? What in your life do you do just because you want to be considered a part of the in crowd, but yet you know that what you have is not consistent with how Jesus wants you to live and to think. You see, every philosophy that comes by is not worthy. I'm, I'm talking about as believers now. I'm not talking about ethnic now. I'm talking about believers. Is not worthy of our co-signing or the embracement thereof. And you and I have to exercise some discernment that everything that comes by with a slogan, everything that tickles my ears, everything that is politically correct and in vogue may not necessarily be godly, righteous, or just. I'll leave that for you to chew on. So that you may approve what is excellent, why? Because Jesus is coming back. The prayer has an eschatological theme in it. Because he mentions twice the day of the Lord or the day of Christ Jesus. And so he says in verse number 6, he says that God will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Eschatological. He says in verse number 10 that you will be found blameless until the day of Christ. Eschatological, meaning that in times, Jesus, E-N-D times, Jesus is coming back. And so he says he wants us to be blameless. And blameless is not sinless perfection. Blameless is the idea or the thought that though you are accused of something, there is insufficient evidence or no evidence to back up the accusation. So when you hear uh, in the qualifications for elders or, or pastors or bishops, it talks about he must be blameless. Uh, not sinlessly perfect because none of us are. But we should have lifestyles so that which we are accused of falsely, our lifestyle alone should be able to refute the accusation. I give you this personal uh, testimony. Some of you know what my former profession was, and I remember one day um, a person came to the office where I worked and made wanted to file a complaint against me and said that I had cursed them out. And um, it was interesting. I wasn't there when they came in. This is what the clerk told me who handled the complaint. Um, the clerk told me, she says now, and they used to call me Brother Morgan at work, I said, now, Brother Morgan, this, and her language was more colorful than this, so I'm going to sanitize it for this audience. But she said, Brother Morgan, this fool came in talking about you cursed him out. And she said, you know, Brother Morgan, if it had been anybody else in this office, I probably would have believed him. 
But she said, I've never heard you say a curse word since you've been. I've been in that office, I think, at that time, something like uh, eight years or something like that. And when she said that, I thought about this. I said, wow, somebody <laughs> has been watching. And it was, it, it, was, it was this reality that hit me that the whole complaint was nullified because it was out of character for the accused. Bring that to your house. Is the accusation nullified because it's out of character for the accused? That's what the term blameless means. And so he says here now, he says here uh, that you may approve the things that are excellent in order that you may be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, okay? The next part of the petition having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, okay, meaning that the spirit is at work in your life and the righteousness uh, of this fruit, this righteousness comes from Jesus Christ to the praise and to the glory of God. The petition is, this is how you are to live in light of your position in Christ. Verses three through six the thanksgiving part of the prayer, talk about their position in Christ. And Paul says now, because this is who you are indicative, this is how you are to live imperative. The imperative is in verses 9 through 11. So how well are we doing with this prayer? Are we living our lives in a way that though acute, the accusation is out of character because of how we live our lives on a regular basis. But the last point of the prayer is this. He says, fruit which comes through Christ Jesus to the praise and glory of God. That is the raison d'etre, which simply means that is the full essence and justification for our existence is our life should be to the praise and the glory of God. Your meeting here on this campus today should be to the praise and the glory of God. Your driving home from here, however far you have to drive, your driving should be to the praise and the glory of God. When you lay head to pillow tonight, your laying head to pillow tonight should be to the praise and glory of God. And should God let life laugh and death pass, when your eyes wake open and wake up in the morning and before your head leaves the pillow or your feet hit the floor, you should be thinking about to the praise and the glory of God. As you go throughout the day in whatever task you have to complete, you ought to be living and thinking to the praise, to the glory of God. That's my reason for existence. That's my cause for breathing in oxygen and expelling carbon dioxide. That's the reason for every blink of my eye, every heartbeat, every blood vessel traveling in my body is to the praise and to the glory of God. And so Paul concludes his prayer by saying, Philippians, when Jesus comes back, it will be to the praise to the glory of God. 
Now you have a good text to preach when you go home.